New lockdown mandates popping up in China just ahead of the Chinese Communist Party's most critical Congress of the year. A U.S. ambassador abiding by Chinese virus control mandates. He was spotted standing in line to get tested, while Internet users question why. Taiwan shoots down Chinese drones for the first time ever. An expert says the island has to push back. The more you're afraid to fight back, the more arrogant and aggressive the CCP will become. We zoom in on one viewer's question. Will U.S. efforts to counter China also hurt Taiwan? And a warning from Australia. This, as one of its neighbors, moves toward unsustainable debt to the Chinese over an energy project. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we turn to today's news, we have a short announcement. China in Focus premieres at 9.30 p.m. Eastern from Monday to Saturday, not only on YouTube, but also on TV. NTD is available on platforms including cable TV, satellite, and over-the-air TV across the U.S., and we're still growing. Check out ntd.com tv for more. Type in your zip code to find all the ways you can watch our show. That's ntd.com tv. And now for today's news. The State Department is urging Beijing to release imprisoned Falun Gong practitioners. In an email to NTD, a State Department spokesperson said thousands of Falun Gong practitioners faced attention, harassment and reported torture and abuse each year for simply peacefully practicing their beliefs. We call on the PRC government to immediately cease its campaign against Falun Gong practitioners, release those in prison due to their beliefs, and address the whereabouts of missing practitioners. The PRC stands for People's Republic of China, the country's formal name. The statement is a response to a New York resident's plea. She's urging the U.S. government to speak out and call for her father's release. Zhang Hongyu is a graphic designer living in New York. Her father has been taken into custody for practicing Falun Gong, a spiritual meditation based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion and tolerance. Zhang says her father's life is on the line. His blood pressure is shooting up over 200. Even so, the police frequently interrogate him. Her father, Zhang Ming, is one of the tens of thousands of Falun Gong practitioners that have endured arrest and prison terms for practicing their belief in China. Last year, authorities abducted over 5,000 Falun Gong practitioners in China. And in the first half of 2022, over 2,000 practitioners lost their freedom because of the regime's persecution campaign. The data comes from Minghui.org. The U.S.-based organization tracks first-hand information on the persecution inside China. Falun Gong is an ancient spiritual practice that became popular in China in the 90s. At the time, over 70 million people were practicing it. But the regime launched a nationwide persecution campaign against the practice in 1999. Since then, millions have been detained and tortured. At least 4,000 have been killed. Lockdowns, mass virus testing, school delays and panic buying. These are among the issues popping up again as another COVID-19 wave sweeps through China. But this time, it comes just ahead of the Chinese Communist Party's most important meeting of the year in Beijing. Here's more. 
Weeks before Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping seeks his third term during China's National Congress, four more areas in Beijing were labeled as high risk for COVID-19 infection on Wednesday. Authorities are tracking the close contacts of confirmed cases and putting them under quarantine to stop the spread. Take one confirmed case in Beijing, for example. Local authorities have tested 160 people. All have had direct or indirect contact with the patient, based on his travel history. One Beijing resident is calling it a political move. We distorted his voice to protect his identity. That's actually routine practice before the CCP's National Congress. Officials from all levels, in order to keep their positions safe, they have to make sure there are no virus cases and will mandate a lockdown even if there's only one. I think that's suppression or a means of maintaining stability. Another Chinese metropolis, Chengdu, went under lockdown on Thursday, confining 21 million residents to their homes. Each household is allowed to send one person out for groceries and essentials once a day, as long as they recently tested negative. Though officials say it's not necessary to stock up on supplies, some residents don't seem to believe them. Many have rushed to clear out store shelves just in case. To protect her identity, we distorted her voice. The pandemic is not that serious. I don't know why they are doing this, suspending all buses and subways and confining people indoors, blocking people up in the community compound. The virus is not that deadly. It's the officers. They do whatever they want. And what can regular people do? Regular people have no power. A number of cities across China have delayed school openings in line with the zero COVID-19 policy. It marks the third year virus prevention measures have interrupted school schedules in China. On the other hand, Shanghai reopened kindergartens, primary and middle schools on Thursday after months of closures. All students returning to class must get tested daily. A top U.S. official is abiding by China's mass COVID-19 testing, United States Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns. Burns tweeted a photo on Thursday of him in line for a nucleic acid test on the street in Shanghai. The requirement falls under mandatory virus policy in the financial hub. The tweet immediately drew attention online. Users expressed surprise that there was no waiver or special arrangement for the U.S. ambassador. Some described it as humiliation ordered by the Chinese Communist Party. One reply warned, they've got your DNA now. The photo was also posted on Chinese social media site Weibo by the U.S. Embassy in China the same day. That post also drew the attention of a large number of Chinese Internet users. Some responded by asking whether Chinese Communist Party officials were made to stand in line for virus testing. What's the real reason behind Beijing's repeated drone harassment near Taiwan? And how should the island handle the situation? Let's dive into some insight from experts. For the first time ever, Taiwan's military shot down an unidentified Chinese civilian drone on Thursday. It had been buzzing around a small Taiwanese-controlled island. This time, the National Army was forced to shoot down the drone in question in a defensive action after warnings and requests for the drone to leave had been ignored. This was the most appropriate action after being patient and repeated warnings. I trust that the Taiwanese people and all democratic countries throughout the world will deem this appropriate. The incident came after Taiwan had repeatedly complained of harassment by drones coming from China. 
The more you're afraid to fight back, the more arrogant and aggressive the CCP will become. The Chinese Communist Party has always used this tactic of civil-military integration to create disputes, and it does not distinguish between civil and military in order to create a gray area for its own benefit. The Taiwanese premier also noted the drone's film video, which he said is later used for internal propaganda. NTD's China Affairs commentator Tang Jingyuan adds that's part of Beijing's warfare efforts. It is an attempt to achieve a psychological warfare effect through repeated harassment and provocation to undermine Taiwan's military morale. At the same time, it also provides good material for brainwashing and fanning the war frenzy of the people inside China. Tang says Beijing wants to escalate tension with Taiwan. On the one hand, it can be used to test the attitude of the Tsai Ing-wen government. On the other hand, it can also be used to test strategies like drone cluster harassment and bombardment. Taiwan think tank Deputy Executive Director Dong Siqi points out another aspect. If the Chinese Communist Party wants to raise tensions in the Taiwan Strait in this way, that further proves one thing, that Taiwan is in no way the problem of regional stability. He called China the largest source of instability and tension in the region. Now we turn to a question from our audience. It has to do with U.S. bills cracking down on the Chinese tech sector, especially the ban on selling high-end semiconductors to China. One viewer wrote in to ask if it will hurt semiconductor manufacturing in Taiwan, too. The answer is yes. The two biggest chip manufacturers in Taiwan have opened factories in China, and a large number of their buyers are also from China. Their businesses related to China are taking a hit. On top of that, some Western politicians are calling to reduce dependence on Taiwanese chips due to heightened tensions between China and Taiwan. Australia is warning one of its neighbors about Chinese infiltration. In a visit to East Timor, Australia's foreign minister urged the island nation not to go into unsustainable debt to the Chinese over a major gas project. Here are more details. We know their economic resilience can be affected, can be constrained by unsustainable debt burdens or by lenders who have different objectives. We, Australia, we seek to help make your country stronger. Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong said she spoke with East Timorese President Jose Ramos Horta. The officials discussed gas fields beneath the seabed located between the two countries. Estimates say the field can produce $50 billion worth of gas. To fund related infrastructure, East Timor was prepared to turn to China. That's what Ramos Horta said last month. Wang declined to say whether Ramos Horta discussed bringing in Chinese partners. She said Australian development assistance came with a spirit of wanting East Timor to be more resilient. The half-island nation has a population of 1.5 million. The Chinese Communist Party is known to lend money to developing countries. But sometimes, when they're unable to pay the Chinese debt, Beijing seizes or leverages key assets in the countries, such as natural sources or ports with military applications. With tensions running high between Taiwan and China, what's behind India's silence on the One China policy? Plus, as a major military power in Asia, what role could the nation play if a war were to break out between Beijing and Taiwan? We hear from Cleo Pascal, Associate Fellow at Chatham House, for insight. 
Cleo, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be here and to see you again. Thank you. So actually earlier this month, Beijing was really pressing India to reiterate the one China policy that's following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And it seems India hasn't publicly used that term since like 2010. So how do you see this all playing out? Yeah, there was a, there's a kind of a strategic silence about the way uh, India's handled this latest, latest event. Uh, it, it's been mentioned on and off, but it was deliberately not mentioned this time. Um, and it's worth pointing out that, of course, the one China uh, policy or um, principle is very different for every country. Um, and in the case of India, what they're very aware of is that if you go by China's maps of what's included in a one China, there are large sections of India included, including uh, in Ladakh and Sikkim and Arunachal Pradesh. So if they acknowledge this uh, this one China as seen by Beijing, then it, it says, OK, well, you can have parts of India, too. So that's clearly a non-starter. And uh, but what we're starting to see now is a, a new kind of language where India is retaking or trying to retake the information warfare high ground and saying things like, not officially, but on in the media, well, what about a one India policy? What about the pieces of, it, of India that China has taken or other countries have taken? So they're, they're playing this uh, very smart and very clearly and trying to put uh, China on the back foot. Up next, we continue on the region dynamics between India and China. What's the power comparison between the two nations? Plus, could Western criticism on India's Russian oil purchase benefit China? More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Now we continue with part two of the interview. What role could India play if a war were to break out between Beijing and Taiwan? And how could the West's criticisms of India buying Russian oil complicate the situation? We hear from Cleo Pascal, Associate Fellow at Chatham House, for her take. And it seems part of that is India and China's own conflict right at the border. But then another piece seems to be the Taiwan part. So like if Beijing actually launches a kinetic attack, India is one of the neighboring countries that has a massive military force they could deploy. And in either of these scenarios, how do you see that really playing out? Because it seems, especially in terms of the border, the elevation's really high. So like could they, could each side even drive in tanks? Like how would that even play out? Right. So there's been a lot of construction of infrastructure, especially uh, on the Chinese side, but on the Indian side as well. Um, and, you know, India is also now starting to talk about Tibet in a way that it, that it hasn't uh, as much publicly before. They flew uh, the Dalai Lama on an Indian uh, military uh, aircraft a helicopter into Ladakh, uh, which is one of the areas that is very sensitive for those Chinese claims as well. So they're they're starting to push back. And there's this kind of whole thing about you now India and China, this is from the Chinese side, have been neighbors forever. And the Indians are sometimes now saying, you know what, we haven't been neighbors forever. We had this country called Tibet that was in between us and that uh, kept the peace between us for a long time. 
And some are saying, you know, maybe it's time to liberate at least parts of Tibet. And that would play into uh, a Taiwan dynamic. It's also worth pointing out, because this is something that's become quite apparent, especially with the Sri Lanka situation uh, heating up, that India is increasingly a, a naval power as well. And China's reach into uh, the Middle East, into the, the oil supply, goes through the Indian Ocean to a large degree. So India has the capability not just of causing a problem on the land border, but also in a blockade situation in conjunction with the United States in the Indian Ocean as well. And it seems in terms of, I want to get to Sri Lanka, but in terms of the geopolitical worldview, India has kind of found itself at a tight spot right now because a lot of Western powers are really blaming India for not criticizing Russia's war on Ukraine. They're also criticizing India for buying oil much cheaper, right, from Russia and basically helping sustain Russia. But it seems in terms of India, they see China as their biggest threat. So they kind of rely on Russia right now for their weapons and all these other things. So going forward, if, you know, war were to break out between Beijing and Taiwan and other world powers are pulled in, what kind of role do you see India playing? So, so, it, so there is this narrative of, of, around India. And of course, it, you have to point out that Europe buys much, much more Russian fossil fuel than, than India does. And there's and it's played into and, and India is very clear and has said repeatedly it was bad for Russia to invade Ukraine. This is we don't want neighbors to invade each other. This is a bad thing. So uh, there, there's been a lot of spin around how the uh, Indian position has been presented. But as you say, you know, they have areas with which they ha they are working with Russia. Uh, they're, they're the older weapon systems in particular, but also some of the new stuff like the S-400 do come from Russia. They're trying to wean themselves off the spare parts supply chain. They're trying to learn how to manufacture more of it domestically. But there are other areas as well. For example, uh, in Central Asia and in Afghanistan, the Indians are, are to some degree needing to work with the Russians, especially since the U.S. withdrawal. So there's a sense that... Um, that the Western position on this, trying to push India in, into this, this position or, the, or paint it as a, as a problem in the, in the Ukraine context, from the Indian perspective, can be perceived as, as hypocrisy. Um, now, that is something that definitely benefits China to try to create a wedge between the U.S. and India. And both the U.S. side and the Indian side, in terms of the deeper strategic communities, especially defense, realize, very aware, that India and the U.S. need to work together on China. So what you hear on the Indian side is the U.S. might come to us and say they want to talk about Ukraine and China, and we'll say we want to talk about China and China. So as long as the focus is on China, which India perceives as its biggest threat, um, the, the interests dovetail uh, completely. And in fact, you see major changes going on in India about how they're reconfiguring their military, they're putting in theater commands, which is a new thing, they're changing their recruitment process. They are very concerned and are, and are gearing up for, for battle. They're, they're trying to clear out um, uh, Chinese tech as much as they can. Um, they're trying to, they're, they're doing military exercises with Vietnam for the first time. Um, they're 
bringing Chinese tech companies up on money laundering charges. Uh, they're they're doing an enormous amount. So we can be we can look at the Ukraine stuff, or we can look at how uh, India, especially on the political warfare front, and and including in places like the Maldives, has been uh, working, unlike almost any other country, to try to limit uh, China's ability to project power. A survivor of Communist China's Cultural Revolution is sending out a warning that the United States is following a similar path. NTD spoke with the Asian American Coalition for Education President Mike Zhao for more. The United States is dangerously close to repeating China's Cultural Revolution. That's according to Asian American Coalition for Education President and author Mike Zhao. The Communist Playbook Unfortunately, you know, they used it to destroy China during Cultural Revolution and, uh, about 50 years ago. Today, the radical left used the same playbook to destroy America. China's Cultural Revolution took place from 1966 to 1976. Communist revolutionary Mao Zedong declared class war, bringing chaos and violence to the country. Schools were closed, historical relics and artifacts were destroyed, and cultural and religious sites were ransacked. The economy stagnated. Millions were persecuted for their political beliefs, and an estimated 1.5 million people died. As a survivor of the Cultural Revolution, Zhao pointed out the similarities in tactics used in American society today to those used in China back then. The first, you know, both the radical left and the Chinese Communist Party used the Marxist lie to establish the moral authority. And the second, they employed divide and conquer example, dividing the citizens into like the oppressors and oppressed. The third, they use the govern the country is radical ideology, not a pragmatic solution. The fourth is they use censorship and council culture to suppress oppositions. And also the fifth, they change the culture, rewriting the history and also indoctrinating the citizens. And also finally number six, they staging social unrest and transforming the government processes. To counter communist infiltration, Zhao said that America needs to stick to its founding principles, like protecting freedom of speech. We should unite all Americans and should not divide our citizens into the oppressors and oppressed. To prevent what happened decades ago in China from happening here in the U.S. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus@ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Shen Yun Creations, the streaming platform from Shen Yun, featuring world-class dance, past programs, and all original music. Masterclasses, behind the scenes, comedy, and more. Explore Shenyuncreations.com.